Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Ecclesiastes. Follows the book of Proverbs, which is, I always thought, is an interesting arrangement of these two books. God's wisdom revealed throughout Proverbs, and then you have the book of Ecclesiastes that follows that with quite a different perspective on life, and yet the summation is very similar. And I just want to read to you the last two verses of Ecclesiastes 12. Before we read the word of God and think about it, let's pray. Truly, O God, you are the observer of our lives in every respect. You know our thoughts from afar. And we have gathered at your call to worship you and to be attentive and entering your praise, and your presence with praise and coming to hear your word. A word that you have caused to be penned by holy men through the work of your Holy Spirit that we may know you and have eternal life and that we may walk in ways pleasing to you. Use your word today, we ask, according to your eternal promises, to always meet with your people when they're gathered together, that you would instruct us and teach us, encourage us, comfort us, correct us, that we may uh, grow in your knowledge and grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is God's word. I know that it's not really something that's very good, um, not commendable, but nevertheless, in my case, a fact of life. I find that in this stage of my life, Myriad details are difficult to grasp or to retain. I find myself wanting to hear what the summary is, or just what the bottom line is. Uh, We know we sometimes say the devil's in the details. Actually, that's not the case. The, The facts of life are in the details of living. But... um, As we grow older, as I grow older, I find it increasingly difficult to recall, remember, or to pay attention to all the little details of life that I should. Well, if that may be your situation as well, this is kind of comforting to read the text today as it begins, then this way it starts. The end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Um, 
Sometimes we, when we think about our faith and theology, we want to hear kind of what, what, what's it, what, what does it mean for me? Um, I lead a Bible study at the retirement community where I live, and we're not so much, I find we're not so much interested in what the text says, but what does it mean for me? And I, said, I always insist, well, before we know what it means for us, we've got to know what the text says and what the text means. But here the author of Ecclesiastes uh, comes to the conclusion of his book in a re- striking way and said, well, here, here's the bottom line. Uh, here, here's the sum of the whole matter. We've heard everything, and this is what you should pay attention to. Fear God and keep his commandments. And he describes it as the whole duty of man. Something that should characterize our whole life. And so we uh, say, well, it grabs our attention. We want to hear, uh, repeat what he said. And what he's saying here is that what he said earlier in the book, God is the one you must fear. Now, what he does, first of all, is say this is, uh, this is we, we've heard uh, the, the end of the matter. All has been heard. And so he highlights the importance of the fear of God in contrast to all the other activities of our lives in this world. We might expect, when he talks this way, he would compare fearing God as over against fearing idols, such as Baal or Asherah, or any of the idols that seemingly had power and influence in the surrounding nations, you you would have thought that he might have drawn that conclusion, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't compare so much the fear of God over against what may have been a a pseudo-fear or a fear of the idols or the false gods that were in the land, but he compares it to activities that uh, comprise just living in this world. And at this point, I'm freely borrow from Sinclair Ferguson's little book, The Pundit's Folly, in which he uh, draws out the contrast. He says, how does, how does he, what does he contrast the fear of God with? Well, the first place is the pursuit of knowledge. Or we might say education, as Ferguson points out in his book. This is the view, as Ferguson says, that man's greatest enemy is ignorance. And undeniably, good education provides many benefits in life. But as he points out, to think that more and better education is the answer to the quest of meaning is one of the most serious mistakes we can make. Seeking meaning for our lives by pursuing education on its own is like a chasing the wind. Some of the most heinous acts in history, are they not, have been done by the best educated members of society. Um, Look at the matter of abortions, supposedly in a highly civilized society. Drug abuse, vulgarities, sexual promiscuity, war. Many years ago, there was a striking example of that at the prestigious prep school in New Hampshire with its sordid, quote, senior salute in a highly educated institution. So that's the first contrast that he makes as he develops his book. The second thing is looking for satisfaction in pleasure. 
We're not looking for it in education. We look for it in pleasure or some form of hedonism or self-indulgence. That's what the writer says. That's what he says earlier. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. In other words, he had whatever he wanted. Whatever he desired, he did. That was his desire in life. He enjoyed himself with laughter, cheering himself with wine, had great possessions and riches, music parties, many girls to fulfill his desires. So everything that he wanted, he had to satisfy his desires. Indeed, what more could one ask in life? To have a fulfilling life. But all the pleasures of life, he says, did not provide lasting satisfaction. As Ferguson notes, our desires are never satisfied. The satisfaction addict is no more able to say, I have enough, I am satisfied, than is the drug addict. There is never enough in the world to satisfy us. Another contrast that he makes is trying to find fulfillment in work or toil, what we, call, what we would describe perhaps as a workaholic. That only resulted in deep disillusionment and despair. He ended up hating life. We had, when we lived in Taiwan, had several friends that, uh, they were not believers, but we, they, I made their acquaintance. They worked day and night to take advantage of what was unfolding before them. In one case, he literally ended up hating work because he did not keep it in proper perspective. So he writes in his book, what has a man from all of his toil and all of his striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. So it's not in education, not in pleasure, not in work. And then he finally talks about success. The dreaming of significance and contentment in success in chapter 5, verse 8. He climbs the wall, he climbs the ladder of success only to find in the end that it's leaning against the wrong wall. As he says so pointedly in chapter 5, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. After he dies, what he has obtained will be handed over a stranger that he does not know. As the author to Ecclesiastes says, it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. And the author, in thinking through all of those things that we do in life, shockingly concludes with this blunt statement. I say, he writes, that a stillborn child is better off than he, because his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. So as the writer to the book of Hebrew, uh, Ecclesiastes makes clear, such pursuits of these are not evil in and of themselves. We know that good education opens many doors. We know that satisfaction with God's gifts is good. That work is a noble calling. That whatever we should do, we should do it well. But yet, when those things become the primary and chief object of our lives, they prove to be 
unsatisfactory. They become idols in themselves. To find one's identity and worth in any of these activities is futile. It is all, as he puts it, meaningless, or it's all empty. As Sinclair Ferguson concludes, unless you fear God, you have missed the secret of life. So that's the counsel of this book, as you read through Ecclesiastes and all of its strange expressions. The warning that he gives to the readers that life without God is ultimately empty. The only way that life will take on meaning and find fulfillment is for men to fear God. C.S. Lewis, Lewis writes in the same vein in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, is, on, is, the, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. So that brings us, you see, then, to say, well, if, this, if satisfaction and fulfillment and happiness is not found in any of these things, what is the duty of men? Well, it's to fear God. And the source of that fear, as you can surmise, is the knowledge of God himself, is the knowledge of the character of God. So when we talk about the fear of God, the fear of God is something that arises from understanding who God is, as revealed in Scripture. Now, fear uh, often uh, is one of those little terms, one of those little words that has a huge range of meaning. And oftentimes, when we hear the word fear, we connect it immediately to the word being afraid. To fear something is to be afraid of something. Feelings of dread, terror, and being afraid. But fear in the Bible goes, it doesn't stop there. It includes that at times. But it goes on to the positive side of uh, recognition, the honor, um, the reverence, it's expressed in reverence and awe, but also comes very close to finding love, the fulfilling of love for God. Um, we naturally associate fear uh, with being afraid. That's what I think, maybe that's why we stay away from this subject uh, I don't know how often you've heard a sermon on the fear of God. Maybe in the Reformed Church you hear more than you do in other places. Hopefully that would be the case, because it lies at the heart of Scripture, that this really expresses what's inside of a believer and his response to God. We all have certain fears. I don't know about you, but when I grew up, I was afraid of the dark. I don't know if I was afraid of the dark. Well, expressed that way. Sometimes children don't like to have their bedroom dark. They like to have a little light on left in the room. So I don't know if it's so much a fear of the dark or what's in the dark that you can't see. But we have things that we have uh, that we fear. We, um, 
where we live, we have many who fear uh, cancer because we know that in an elderly age, many of us contact cancer. My brother is very weak weak, uh, with cancer as we speak. So something that uh, often people are extremely afraid of. Another thing that we've found at the homestead, a fear that's often not expressed, but it's a fear of loneliness, being alone, especially after you've lost a spouse, something. There's a great fear of being alone by oneself, fear of death. Um, I had an elder in the church, he often talked about, he had claustrophobia, fear of closed spaces. Sometimes he had nightmares of being in a tight space that he'd wake up in a cold sweat. Um, when uh, I was young, that was many years ago, but the phrase would be, be said of someone, a young person who was kind of wild and uncontrolled in his behavior. Someone would often say, someone needs to put the fear of God into that boy's life. You know, that's how we often use the term in understanding. Well, that may have been true um, because sometimes that's how the scriptures even use the phrase. Uh, in Psalm 119, you know, read of the psalmist says, my flesh trembles for fear of you. Interesting expression, isn't it? My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I'm afraid of your judgments. So he had a certain expression. Like Adam, after he had sinned when God came to meet with him, he hid. Why? Because he was afraid of God, because he was naked. So God, in a sense, is to be feared, Above all else, the Lord warned his servant Isaiah not to be like the people in fearing what they feared, but he was to regard the Lord of hosts as holy. He said, let him, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. So the the term fear does have an element to it that is to see God in all of his majestic holiness Um, strikes a note of fear in our hearts. The Lord told his disciples, do not fear those who can just kill the body, but I warn you to whom to fear. Fear him who has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. But that is the, if, if that's a part of understanding the term fear, it's really just a part. It's, 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 a, it's recognizably an important part that, that crops up in many times. Because when we talk about, I want, I want to get close to God, we say, we kind of have those sentimental thoughts, but often if we're close to God, anyone close to God, where do you find them? Flat on their face on the ground. They're kind of, they're just overwhelmed by that seeing God in his glorious majesty. That was certainly true in Isaiah when he saw the Lord lifted up on his throne. What's his immediate response? Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. That becomes an awareness of both our smallness and even of our uncleanness, or maybe even our sloppiness as we go about our lives. But understanding the fear of God 
goes much deeper than that, doesn't it? And how the term is used throughout Scripture. That God is not only seen as this person before whom we tremble, and that is true, but we understand something more of his nature. First of all, we understand his greatness as revealed in all of creation. Understanding the transcendent majesty of God. Many years ago, there was a book written by J.B. Phillips, I think it was. His title was, Your God is Too Small. And I, I've often think that of myself. I, how I think of God, how, my, how I conceive of God, how I hold him in my thoughts is really very small or tiny compared to what it should be in his transcendent majesty. Psalm 33, for example, in verses 6 and 9, we read, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let the earth fear the Lord. Let the earth recognize the greatness, the creative wonder of who God is. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe. Of him. For he spoke, and it came to be commanded, and it stood firm. It's God who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. God is to be acknowledged for his greatness. That leads to a greatness of praise. Our worship of God is not to be done in a perfunctory manner, but in recognition of the greatness of God. He is greatly, he's to be rejoiced in and to be honored in that. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, for he is to be feared above all gods. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. The scriptures call us to recognize the greatness of God and his perfection in his transcendent majesty. When Moses, for example, and the people of Israel saw the great power of the Lord in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians, they feared the Lord and sang to him, Who is like you, O Lord, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Also in Revelation 15, the triumphant saints are seen in glory, singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Such rejoicing. It's kind of in a strange way. We wouldn't make these connections. But such rejoicing is accompanied with a spirit of trembling. As Psalm 2 reminds us, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It's a recognition again of the greatness of the God that we serve. When Jacob was fleeing for his life from his brother Esau, the Lord appeared to him in a dream in Bethel. And when he awoke, he exclaimed, he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. Then even as we are reminded, as we prepare for remembering the incarnation, 
of the Lord, the angelic, the angelic hosts that we'll sing about at the end, the angelic hosts appear to announce the birth of the Son of God. The shepherds, you say, oh, wasn't this great? This is good. Whew, this is wonderful. They were filled with fear at this expression of God's presence and the expression of his glory. So you see, it's that sense that God is awful. He is full of awe. Whatever it is that would capture our minds is a sense of the greatness of God in his transcendent majesty. God is not to be a lightweight in our thoughts and attitudes. A lack of fear to act as, is to act as if God did not exist. But God is not only to be feared because of his transcendent majesty, that sense of fear, this proper fear, this proper understanding of who God is, is because God knows all about us. God is imminent. God is close to us. I'm hoping in Sunday school that we may explore these a little bit more in detail and its ramifications. As the first catechism says for children, we cannot see God, but he always sees us. And that he sees us, not just to see us, but he knows us. He does not look upon our outward appearance, but upon our hearts. He is the searcher of our thoughts and of our inward desires. He is fully cognizant of our impure thoughts and desires and covetousness as is set forth in Colossians 3. James makes the point, God is the judge of every insulting comment about a brother and every careless word that we speak. Also in Matthew 6, he knows our forked tongues by which we bless God and we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Nothing is hidden to God from whom even the darkness is as light. For the young people, perhaps, we need to know that there are no ghost apps with God. He's just not a God out there, coming high and lifted up, but it's in him that we live and move and have our very being. That's, that's revealed in Peter's life, isn't it? So much that we, we like Peter because he's so much like us. Or was, we're so much like him, maybe. But when the Lord told him, when there's fishing, they'd been out fishing all night, caught nothing. The Lord appeared and he said, well, put, the, put your nets on the other side of the boat. And he did so reluctantly. And when he pulled in the full boats, full nets, he fell down at the feet of Jesus and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Interesting in that. When he come to understand who his Lord was, he would just say, you don't want anything to do with me because I'm a sinful man. Verse 14 of our text says, God, in this text of Ecclesiastes, God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. But that's not all. Our concept of fear is motivated and shaped and guided by the fact 
of our understanding of God's character as good, kind, and merciful. Fear is ultimately qualified by, and magnified by God's gracious character. The fear that the Bible speaks about is not just simply a matter of dread or terror or trembling, but it also constrains love, faith, and obedience. The fear of God is not the fear of a slave for his master, but of the fear of a son for his father, who loves him and cares for him. Psalm 130, chapter 4, we read, strikingly, when I first read that in first grasp, it just doesn't seem, it seems counterintuitive, it doesn't seem like you'd say the next thing. If you were writing this in the psalm, you say, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be, what would you write there? I, I don't And I'm thinking, I'd never write the word fear, but that's what's found there, that you may be feared. An understanding of God in such a deep way that there is forgiveness of all of our sins through the redemptive work of God's Son, our Savior. When we come to understand the nature of God and His transcendent majesty and sovereignty, His infinite and glorious imperfections, His holy hatred for sin, when we begin to understand what the Bible portrays him in his character, it's this God that forgives all of your transgressions. He remembers them no more. Can God truly be like that? Do we understand him to be that way when we gather for worship? That we are acceptable to him, not because of our works that we've done, our lives, but because we cling to his beloved son as our savior and we are covered by the blood of his atonement. That shapes shapes our worship. Absolutely amazing. It's amazing. It's wonderful. It's incredible that a holy, perfect God will forgive transgressions against his own character, against his law. That's good. No compromise of his perfect justice, but unfathomable mercy. That's what John Newton has taught us to sing. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. God is wonderful, full of wonder. The fear of God, you see, is joined to that loving God and serving him faithfully. The child of God fears becomes one of reverential delight in doing what pleases his heavenly father. And finally, fear, as it's developed in the scriptures, is expressed How fear is expressed is believing and obeying the word of God. God has revealed to his people what his will is in his covenant. Deuteronomy 6 that we read, we are not only to be recipients of God's words, but we are to be those who do it, those who keep it. 
as those who love God and those who fear him. We have this example in scripture of Abraham, who at God's command to offer up his son as a burnt offering. He rose early in the morning. That's it, I didn't put it off till the end of the day. It's interesting, he makes that little note. It's good. He got up early in the morning to an obedience to God's word. And as you know, God ultimately provided a ram in his place and then said to Abraham, God said to Abraham in the provision of the ram, now I know you fear God since you did not withhold your only son from me. Abraham's obedience demonstrated his fear of God in his heart. This is what Calvin writes in this. He says this, The pious mind always exercises the utmost diligence and care not to wander astray or rashly or boldly go beyond his will, not out of dread of punishment alone, but because it loves and reveres God as Father. It worships and adores him as Lord. Here indeed is pure and real religion, faith joined with an earnest fear of God. And as Murray sums up in his book, sums up in a chapter on the fear of God with his opening sentence, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. Psalm 1911, 19, 8 and 11 says this, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. By them is your servant one, and in keeping them there is a great reward. It's interesting that the covenant that God gave through Levi was called the covenant of life and peace and fear. And he feared me and stood in awe of my name. So it's a fear of God that separates believers from unbelievers. The scriptures talk about the sinner, the one who does not know God, characterize him. There's no fear of God before their eyes. But that is to be true of us in responding to God's grace and the gift of his son. That we are those who embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior. When we confess Christ, it's not just a verbal statement, but expresses the reality that we receive the message of the scriptures in faith and repentance in the acknowledgement of God's sovereign greatness and infinite mercy. That's what it means to confess Christ as one God has provided himself for our redemption. And we respond in fear, in love, and faith. In other words, we flee from the wrath to come and taking refuge in the effective, redemptive work of our Savior, who is the propitiation for our sins. It's remarkable. The only one thing I think that puts the capstone on that and helping us understand the fear is that it's the fear of God that emanated in the Son of God himself. Isaiah prophesied that a branch would come from the stump of Jesse, and this is how it describes him. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. That's, you see now, you see now the, the, the heart, the motivation of the Son of God in carrying out his ministry was that perfect love 
reverence, fear for his father. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, Isaiah chapter 11. So John Murray concludes this, remarkable words, beautifully words. He said, if he who is holy, harmless, and undefiled and separate from sinners was endued with the spirit of the fear of the Lord, how can thought or feeling that is not conditioned by God's fear have any kinship with him who has given us an example that we should follow in his steps? The church walks in the fear of the Lord because the spirit of Christ indwells, fills, directs, and rests upon the church. And the spirit of Christ is the spirit of the fear of the Lord. So what a wonderful thing it is to think about as we gather for worship, that we are to worship the Lord in reverence and in awe. We are to come with a love for the Lord and seek his grace that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, that we be built up, that the word of Christ dwell in us richly. But by faith we stand every Sunday at the crucifixion of Christ and are overwhelmed that the one who is the Lord of glory has laid down his life to save us from our sins. The cross of Christ reveals the character of God who for our sake made his sinless son to be sin on him that we might become the righteousness of God. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how can we not be humbled and awed at the extent of his love and mercy and sanctify Christ in our hearts as Lord? Let us pray. It's true, our Father, we speak of things that are more wonderful than we understand. In some sense, we are like the publican at the temple, ashamed to lift our eyes toward heaven. And we say, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. For that's what we all are. And yet we're here by your grace. You have called us through your word, by your spirit, to acknowledge our transgressions, And to acknowledge the gift, that remarkable gift, that indescribable gift that you've given to us, that in his work we may be forgiven and received, adopted to be your children. And this has been your work from before the foundations of the world. We are humbled at thoughts that we don't begin to grasp. Because often our words and our thoughts and our actions reveal the opposite. As if there was no fear of you in our eyes. So encourage your people this day, we pray, as we consider these words from your word that we may walk before you uprightly, that we would love you 
with greater intensity of love, that you would bless our homes, marriages, parents and children, and the witness of the church to the world that we know something so good that we want to share it with you that you may escape from the judgment to come. Help us to that end, we pray, our Father, in Christ's name. Amen.